Salted Hash. I'm J.M. Porup filling in for Steve Reagan, and we are here with Bruce Schneier to uh, talk about his new book, Click Here to Kill Everybody. Thanks for coming in, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, I read your book, and I, I wrote a book review, and there's some uh, big ideas here for policymakers and for society at large, I'd say. I like to think so. In a sense, you know, from my perspective, they're not new, but they're new, I think, for everybody else. Mm. What I'm really writing about is the computerization of everything mm. and how that changes security. We're used to computers being our laptops and our phones, and they're moving into everywhere else in our lives, mm. which means computer security becomes everything security. And all the lessons that we know from computer security from all these decades of working on it become applicable to everything. So it's less big new ideas and more here are these old ideas that have been limited to computers that you, the general everybody, now has to know about. Mm. There was there was a key passage that jumped out at me about uh, in the old days your spreadsheet crashed and you lost your data and now your car is going to crash and you're going to lose your life. Same kill chain, same exploit, same software, same operating system, and we're not dealing with that that massive change. So that so that's a key difference that. A couple of things, that computers now affect the world in a direct physical manner. Mm. That is not about spreadsheets and data. Mm. That it's about cars and medical devices and power plants and drones and smart city everything. It's things that touch the world. Mm. So it used to be the worst thing a hacker could do is crash your data. Now they can crash your refrigerator, your thermostat, or your car. Right? So, so that is a big change. Mm. And the second is that they're permeating everything. Mm. So they're becoming cheaper, so we're seeing them in more things. I tried to buy a car last year that didn't have an internet connection. Mm -hmm. I failed. <laughs> now, not because those cars don't exist, but in the kind of class and type of car I wanted, there wasn't an option. You don't want a 1974 Chevy Nova? I didn't. <laughs> and I think in a few years, that'll be true for your refrigerator. Right now, it's easy not to get an internet refrigerator. You just don't ask for one. But you know, fast forward a few years, and they'll all be internet connected. Mm. And then this is going downhill to cheaper and cheaper things, to more uh, home consumer items, toys. It, you know, IoT people talk about chips in your clothing, chips in uh, groceries you buy, mm -hmm. right? Being driven by by Moore's law that they're just coming so cheap mm. that it's easy to put them in things. It sounds as though, as a society, we failed to do the calculus between the value add and the, the security cost, and that we're incurring like technical debt really fast without dealing with those issues up front. I, mean, I think that's precisely it. I wouldn't put it that way, but I think that that captures it. Mm -hmm. We deal with the economics of the thing based on the functionality. Mm. So I'll get asked all the time, you know, why do they put a internet connection in a refrigerator? And the reason is it's cheaper to do it that way. Mm -hmm. Ten years ago, you bought a refrigerator, it had computerization. Yeah. There was a specialized chip designed for that refrigerator that would handle the compressors and the thermostat and would do all of the controls. Mm -hmm. Now, you build a refrigerator, you don't make a specialized chip. You get one of those cheap microcontrollers off the shelf, a Raspberry Pi or something else, mm -hmm. and it comes with an internet stack. It comes with video software. It comes with microphone software. It comes with all those things. So the cost of adding the features is minimal because the software is already there. Because you bought this more powerful chip than you need. So we're going to start seeing all these features. And that's why now someone could hack your Roomba and have it follow you around and try to trip you. 
because that Roomba has the computer in a way, you could have built a robot vacuum cleaner 10 years ago, but mm. it wouldn't have. So that's the economics. We're not looking at the security costs. Mm. I think that's key to, key to your point because they're largely externalities. Mm. Right? Customers don't understand them, don't know how to pay for them. The government's not regulating. Government's not regulating them, so they're just kind of there. And this is what my book is about. Mm. Now, what happens when the internet becomes physical mm. and how that changes things? And the regulatory calculus is different. It was easy to say to Silicon Valley, we're not going to regulate you, because it was just about data. It didn't matter. Just about data. But you know, even, Still, nobody dies. Right. Even as important as data is, it's bank accounts, it's voting, it's real important stuff, mm. but nobody dies. Right? That's going to change. That'll change with the first hacked car accident. Mm. And then it's different. It'll change with a power plant when that's hacked. We, we've seen some pieces of this. But that, that when we know that that's what caused it, I mean, in many cases, things may happen and we may attribute it to human error or to an accident. You, you've, you've previously spoken about, I think it was the 20, 2003 power outage or 2005. That, that, like, there's no way to know, but, but you, you were theorizing that may have been uh, um, caused by, by some sort of intrusion. Yeah, this is 2003, that power blackout that hit the northeast quadrant of the United States and yes. southeast quadrant of Canada. Hmm. It, you read the report, and it seems likely that there was a computer failure. It was the same day or day after one of the big viruses, I think it was NIMDA, if you hmm. remember, for that far back, infected everything. Mm -hmm. And you look at it, it was PCs in an Ohio station mm -hmm. that didn't respond to an alarm, and it doesn't say it, but I'm reading between the lines and saying, that PC was affected with NIMDA, that's why it wasn't working. But that was 15 years ago. We're a lot better yes. at forensics. We're a lot better at figuring out the cause. We might not know it immediately. It might take us a few weeks, think of uh, North Korea and Sony. But after but the fact, we're, we're we, gonna be able to put the we'll, pieces we'll, together. We'll figure it out. If someone hacks all the cars. A class break is going to be pretty obvious. Or, you know, you say all the cars of one make and model year. Still, like, we're going to know gonna about know. that. We're going to know. And if there's suddenly ransomware against thermostats, if there are criminals harming people, mm -hmm. maybe with cars or medical devices, I think we'll figure it out. Yeah. And in a sense, that's going to be a key moment because it'll wake people up to the idea that, whoa, this internet can now kill people. We need to do something. Will, and, it, will it do more than wake people? Will it cause hysteria? I, I'd rather worry that that could be far worse, I mean, than just waking people up. You know, I, that, so it's an interesting question. I don't know. I, I'm, in a sense, writing this book, which is largely about regulation, largely about here's how public policy can fix this. Mm. Now, when there's no crisis, to start the discussion before there's a crisis. Right? Yeah. My fear is that some disaster happens Government says something must be done, this is something, therefore we must do it. That kind of knee-jerk reaction we saw after 9-11. That got us the Patriot Act, the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, yeah. a lot of things that just weren't well thought out yeah. because people were scared. And, we, and, and rightly so. I, I mean, it, it, was a, it was a, if there, anything would cause hysteria, right. that, that certainly would. But fear-based policy tends not to be the best policy. So if we can have the discussion about what regulation would look like now, when there's no crisis, right? when the worst that's happened is 
you know, Atlanta being taken over by ransomware, or hospitals being taken over by ransomware, mm. or NotPetya causing hundreds of millions of dollars of damage, or WannaCry, or Sony. You know, we, we have these examples, mm-hmm. uh, Equifax, that are, that are big, that I actually thought would cause legislators to enact policy, but haven't yet. Mm. You know, when we can see the future, we can have the policy discussion with some calmness and rationality. Mm. I mean, a lot of what I have to overcome is the belief in Silicon Valley that all regulation is evil. Right, this this very neo-libertarian stay out of our way, mm. which was fine when the internet was benign. Mm. I mean, you could say to Silicon Valley, "You guys are the best wealth generation machine we have seen in a long time. We're going to let you be." Keep doing it. But when the internet kills people, I don't think that's sustainable. You know, I'll, I'll give this talk to tech companies, yeah. and what I tell them is, we're past the point of regulation versus no regulation. Now we're at the point of smart regulation versus stupid regulation. And you want to be involved in the debate. Now. Uh, now, right, because otherwise you're not going to like what's going to happen. Right. You know, and done well, we can stimulate the industry, right? Mm. We can spur innovation. Regulation doesn't inhibit innovation. It, it can guide it. It guides it. it right? I mean, right now there is no market for a lot of the security tech. Hmm. that we know is essential. We can create the market. We create the market by forcing companies to be more secure. Hmm. And then once you do that, the engine of innovation figures out how to do it better, cheaper, faster, and and we all win. Hmm. I think there's going to be some slowness in the tech improvement. I mean, we see this. Look at industries that really can kill you, pharmaceuticals. Highly regulated. <laughs> Highly regulated. Reason. Automobiles, airplanes. Hmm. I mean, you 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 have to do things slowly because the effects of doing them fast are so bad. Mm. We're likely going to hit that with some parts of the internet because it is so embedded in our economy, in our society, in our lives, mm. and it's going to get even more so. One of the ironies there is, is that uh, a big point from your book is that uh, government and industry have, until now at least, deliberately designed an insecure internet because they profit from that. And now we're asking for the government to regulate even though they have a 20, 30 year history of deliberately making things broken so that they can engage in, for instance, mass surveillance or or targeted hacking. And I think this is gonna be a a huge battle. And it's not just government, we'll start with industry, right? Surveillance capitalism is the business model of the internet. And that is a business model that involves spying on you, mm. which means kind of breaking your security. That's moving into an architecture of control, mm. where companies want to control what you can do with the device you have. Uh, so the, the common story are, are carrot coffee machines, yeah. which control what kind of uh, coffee pods you can use. Uh, John Deere, which controls how if farmers can repair their tractors. Think of a Kindle. A Kindle can, the, Amazon can reach into your Kindle remove a book if it wants. It can decide whether a book you buy uh, can be converted text to speech. It could conceivably decide what countries you can read that book in. If they wanted to decide what typefaces. You didn't buy this book in large format. You only bought it in small type. Mm. And, And that's this architecture of surveillance and control that goes against security. So yes, we're gonna have to force companies to eschew those business models. That's gonna be hard. Then there's what you brought up, 
government profits from this too. You know, whether it's a government like China that uses mass surveillance for broad social control, mm-hmm. a government like the U.S. that generally uses more targeted surveillance for for law enforcement, but but bleeds into discrimination against uh, marginalized minority groups. Mm. You know, countries in the middle. You're gonna have to ask them to give up some of these capabilities, right? The FBI is gonna have to be told, look, you can't get into an iPhone. Now, we've had this debate for for decades, Mm. but now it becomes more important, right? If that iPhone is being used by our legislators, the Mm. people who run our nuclear power plants, suddenly the stakes are different, Mm. right? If hacking into the computer, if, if giving the government a backdoor into our computer means they have a backdoor into our cars and our thermostats and our medical devices, leaving that backdoor open is now much more dangerous. Mm. What I talk about in my book, and I, as a philosophy measure, as a, as a philosophical way of thinking, is that we need to move to a defense-dominant strategy. Mm. That defense has to win. That when there is this discussion between should we make this system optimized for offense so we can attack our enemies, mm. or optimized for defense so our enemies can't attack us, defense has to win. Well, These systems are becoming too critical to do otherwise. So I agree with you, but, but let, let, let me play devil's advocate. The NSA would say there is this huge asymmetry between offense and defense, and unilateral disarmament would essentially give our enemies uh, a ways to attack us that we could not defend against. But th- that's not the way it works. It's not that we defend our systems and attack their systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the Cold War way of thinking. Mm. Right? We would defend U.S. communication systems, the NSA would, and attack Soviet communication systems. That worked because they were different systems. Mm. Now, we're all using the same systems. We all use TCPIP and Cisco routers and Microsoft Windows and PDF files. So it's really one answer mm. that we can leave those systems vulnerable to attack our enemies, Mm -hmm. thereby necessarily and unavoidably leaving our own systems vulnerable to attack, or we can defend our systems, Mm. protecting us from enemies, thereby unavoidably protecting our enemies from us. So we have to choose offense or defense. We're either all of us free and secure or none of us free and secure. That's right, And, and that's a hard choice. Because we're going to secure our enemies as we secure ourselves. We have to understand that that's a good deal. It's not unilateral disarmament. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's global security. And yes, that makes us weaker on the offense. We have to believe that we are stronger overall mm-hmm. because we are stronger on the defense. And that argument has played out for decades, mm-hmm. but now defense matters more. Because now defense is life and property, where mm. before it was just data. Mm. One of the most striking passages from the book was, there's no, way to, there's no way to secure our phones and computers from criminals and terrorists without also securing the phones and computers of those criminals and terrorists. Right. A- a- and we're stuck. I mean, sometimes I- I'll give this as an analogy. It's, it's kind of a mediocre one. Mm-hmm. So this is my idea to uh, eliminate terrorism. So we know that terrorists plan... And they, when they plan, they eat meals, okay? So I'm going to poison the food supply, right? No, 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 hear me out. Terrorists will get these poisoned meals, eat them, and they die. What's wrong with my plan? Because we're all going to die if you right. do that. 
And it's in a lot of ways, it's the same thing. It's infrastructure. Mm. If we make the infrastructure better, it's better for everybody. Mm. So bank robbers use cars to get away. Right? Drug dealers use the same money transfer systems that we do. Mm. That I, I can't make the infrastructure work differently for people with different morals. Mm. So either I make the infrastructure good or bad for everybody. Mm. One of the key points that, that you really um, hammer home in the book is that the one way to get there is to have public interest technologists, uh, people who are working um, not just for profit, but, but are donating their time and expertise to policymakers, to moving the needle on, on, on these issues. I think that's an important point. I, I, this is bigger than computer security, but we'll sort of start there. Sure. I mean, right now, the policy debates about cybersecurity are deeply technological. We've been having this, what they call the going dark debate. Yeah. What happens when the FBI can't break into iPhones or uh, Facebook Messenger? And how do they solve crimes? There are debates and vulnerabilities and what we should do about them. There are debates about voting machine security. There are all of these debates that are policy debates that are deeply technical. Mm. And if you watch the Facebook hearings, you know what it's like when a non-technical legislator talks to a Silicon Valley executive. Yeah. They ask questions like, how do you make money? And a whole series of questions that, that tell you deep down that they will not be able to write good policy. Yeah. That needs to change. We need to fix that. Mm. And, and I think that we as technologists, some of us at least, must get involved in public policy. Mm. A lot of ways we can do this, right? I mean, there is working on congressional staffs and actually is a program that Mozilla funds, Tech Congress. Which is great. Right, putting technologists on congressional staffs so that they can ask better questions, write better legislation and, and conceive a better policy. Mm. Putting technologists in federal agencies at the Federal Trade Commission, Department of Transportation, FAA. Mm. And you can imagine all of these places where you're gonna need computer security experts to understand the, the issues that they have to regulate. Mm. There's uh, putting technologists uh, at NGOs. And if, if there isn't somebody at the NAACP who understands algorithmic discrimination, they don't understand discrimination in the 21st century. So some of this is easy, EFF and EPIC, right? You know, the organization we're used to mm. do this regularly. ACLU is starting, mm -hmm. but a lot more organizations are gonna need cybersecurity expertise. Mm. Even something as simple as Human Rights Watch, which is gonna need expertise because they're being attacked by mm. foreign governments all over the world. We need technologists in the press, right? Julia Angwin has just started the markup, which is gonna be a tech data science driven journalism initiative, right? That's fantastic. Mm. And that kind of thing is gonna, I think it make a huge difference. And then working within companies, I think of Jigsaw sort of as my, my example, as a public interest tech arm of, of Google's Alphabet, mm. or Alphabet's Google, I can never, I never know quite <laughs> how to explain Alphabet that. Alphabet soup. It, right, it's Alphabet is the company, but no one knows what it means. So you have to say Google, but Google is now not the parent company. Anyway, but there are others, right? There are other ways that in companies you can do public interest tech, mm. right? This marrying of tech and policy. Mm. Last one is academia, right? I now teach at the Harvard Kennedy School. So this is a public policy graduate school at Harvard, and I'm teaching cybersecurity policy. That's I'm cool. teaching 
how cryptography works, how firewalls work, how Bitcoin works, in ways that you as a potential policymaker, a regulator, some, you know, someone in the press, someone in the military, someone in government can understand these issues. Mm. I think this is vital for society. Mm. Now, it's bigger than computer security. Certainly. I think pretty much every major problem we have in this century is fundamentally tech-based. Right? Climate change, food security, algorithms, and AI and robotics. You know, these are all going to have deep tech components. This worries me for democracy because if we go back, I don't know, let's say 200 years, like everybody basically understood all of the existing technology and everybody could equally participate as a citizen. Like, okay, you have a, you have a muzzle-loading musket or whatever. You know, we, we, we know how, the, how that works, you, you know. But today, we're, we seem to be verging towards almost technocracy. Anyone ignorant of how the technology works is almost excluded from an informed public conversation about the social and political consequences. And I think not. And it's also not really, really new, right? <clears throat> Nuclear deterrence sure. was a complex field with a lot of expertise that you and I didn't study and don't understand. No. But we can still talk about disarmament and nuclear policy. I don't need to know how a nuclear bomb right. works to know that it can destroy a city and the humanity has And them. you don't need to know, how, to know how a car works to have an opinion about cities and traffic and congestion. So I think there will be a level where the public can debate. I, mean, mm. I don't know how to, to know how machine learning works to say that algorithms should be fair. And yes, there are different kinds of fairness, but that can be explained in a way mm. that my family can understand. Mm. And they're not going to be able to code it, <laughs> but they can have the de they can have the debate. Mm. So we can talk about class breaks, right? All the cars breaking at once. We could talk about ransomware and different pieces of cybersecurity to the public. I think this can be made into a policy issue, just like in food security or genetic engineering for GMOs. There's a deep tech component, mm. but it does bubble up to what's important to society, and that mm. debate can happen. So we, I think we've moved steadily over the centuries mm -hmm. to a world where if you're not specialized, you don't understand it. Mm. And there are thousands of those specializations. Certainly. I mean, I, I, mean, I walk into a, do into a doctor's office, and I have no idea what he's doing. But I still have an opinion on what he tells me to do, <laughs> And I also have an opinion on healthcare in the United States. Sure. Right. So I think I think I think I'm more optimistic than you are. I think <laughs> we, I, Considering the Cassandra tone of your book, that is saying a lot. Because you know, you you, you talk about all these great policy proposals, and then you say that's never going to happen. Here's Plan B, and then you say Plan B is never going to happen. It's all it's all we're in a, we're in a really deep mess. So so I mean, as a practical matter, I mean, you offer what seem like extremely sensible public policy proposals, and then in the same breath say. As a practical matter, these are probably never going to happen. What do we do? So it's not that bad. And actually, I kind of think I'm the anti-fear person. But yes, this is probably my most pessimistic book. The author of a book called Click Here to Kill Everybody. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's a title to get you to click I on know, it, right? I know, that's, I know. that's clickbait. I know. The, so I see a couple of areas of, I think, optimism. Mm. In the United States, the states are taking things over. California? Specifically California, New York, and Massachusetts. Yeah. We just saw an IoT bill out of California. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say there are 50 big problems with IoT, IoT security. This addresses one of them. Now there are 49. So, right, small step, but it's a step. Yeah. 
Massachusetts is doing a lot of things in data privacy and security. New York also, they're trying to regulate cryptocurrencies. I mean, things are being done at the state level mm -hmm. that are taking over the federal level. And then also Europe. GDPR. Right, the European Union is the regulatory superpower on the planet. Mm. They are not afraid to regulate GDPR, uh, and they also not afraid to fine companies amounts they notice. Mm. Not just little slap on the wrist fines like the United States does. Mm. I mean, they're serious. 4% annual revenue? Something, is right, crazy. That, that, that's just like, wow. And we haven't seen it implemented yet, mm. but as soon as it is, I think it's gonna be a lot of people noticing. Mm. The thing about security is that we benefit. So you know, since GDPR passed, you've been seeing a lot more alerts and warnings on your browser. Yeah. Right? Even though you don't live in Europe. Yeah. And that's because for software, it's much easier to write it once and use it everywhere. And so the car you buy in the United States is not the car you buy in Mexico. No. Right? Environmental laws are different. The engines tune differently to the local laws. It's cheaper in Mexico because the consumer can, can afford a cheaper car. That's right. But the Facebook you get in the United States is the same Facebook you get in Mexico because it's easier that way. So California passes this law, which was no default passwords. Mm. Companies will ch update their products to have no default passwords to sell in California. They're not gonna have a separate product line for the rest of the world. Mm. We will all benefit from that. Yeah. So all it takes is a few big markets, whether the US states, the EU, you know, Japan, individual countries like Germany and the UK, Australia, to pass these rules, and that will raise the tide for everybody. So while I think the U.S. is has a pretty dysfunctional government, is unlikely to do anything anytime soon, mm -hmm. I think we'll see more regulation out of these other areas. Mm. What, what area are you most optimi optimistic about seeing significant progress being made in? I think you see progress in the things that are the most dangerous, cars. Right? Even in the U.S., mm. right, the Department of Transportation is really working on regulations for driverless, driver-assisted cars, cars that communicate with each other mm. to make these systems secure. I mean, they are working on it. Cars are big and expensive, mm. so there is more of that uh, ability to have an engineering team. I mean, this is one of the reasons home routers are so insecure. Your phone is secure because Apple has an engineering team dedicated to security. Mm, it's a thousand dollar device, it's not a forty dollar And And with a, with a big software development team behind it. Mm. A router is cheap, but it's also designed sort of offshore by third parties. Team comes together, builds it, and then disperses. Mm. There's nobody on staff waiting for the vulnerability to appear to write the patch. Mm. The economics don't allow it. Not, not even at Cisco? Cisco doesn't do their own home routers. They'll do the big stuff. They don't, they don't, all right, they right, just, right. They just OEM it. Someone else does it. I mean, you know, the way you fix your router is you throw it away and buy a new one. Right? That's the patch mechanism. So cheaper devices, I think, are gonna be a lot slower because the economics mm. is, is so bad for, in this regard, mm. right? So your DVR, a, a webcam you have, those are gonna be much harder. The big expensive things, cars, medical devices, infrastructure like power plants. There you're gonna see more work. Mm. I don't know if we'll stay ahead of the attackers, mm. but you are gonna see a lot of money and effort and existing regulation. Because those are three areas that are already highly regulated. Mm. In software, we're used to no regulation. But as software moves into these already regulated spaces, there's an infrastructure of regulation already in place. Mm. And that just is brought to bear on this new way of, of doing a car or a medical device. 
So I'm more optimistic there, even though those seem more critical. I think we just have more infrastructure capability and willingness to do the work. Interesting. Well, I was going to ask you something, but it escaped my mind. Um, uh, some people have suggested that uh, software liability is preferable to regulation because uh, or a combination of liability and insurance is preferable to regulation because of people's distrust of government and their ability to offer uh, fine-grained, uh, useful regulation in this space. How, how do you fall on that, on that debate? So I think you need everything. All three. Well, 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 five, all six, there are lots of different pieces. Working together. And I think regulation is very misunderstood in the tech community. We think of regulation as you shall do this, you shall not do that. Mm. It's actually a lot of different types of regulation. There are rigid rules, right? Speed limit is 55 miles per hour is a rigid rule. Right? The, the brake lights on the car have to be this high off the ground and this amount of illumination. I'm making this up, but that's going to be a rigid rule. Yeah. There are also much more flexible standards. Right? You, you're not allowed to drive faster than road conditions permit. So, that's, so that is a standard. Mm. And, and you can be fine. Get a ticket for not yeah. doing that. Yeah. Even though that is totally open to interpretation. Reckless driving. Right. Federal Trade Commission has a lot of these sorts of rules about consumer goods. Mm. You have to take best, uh, make best efforts to ensure this or that. Mm. And we're going to have both in IT security. There'll be something like the California law, no default passwords. Right? That's a rule. You can't have them. If you have them, you're in violation. It's a reasonable... And it's reasonable. Draw they'll be, they'll be more uh, They'll be more flexible standards. Mm. You have to take reasonable care securing your user and customer data. Mm. Right? And what that means will change over time. That's more normative-based. Right. So there will be those. There also will be liabilities. If something bad happens, mm. those affected will be able to sue. And they might actually use some of these standards when they sue, right? NIST has a cybersecurity framework. It's voluntary. But you can imagine a regime where it's voluntary, but if you don't follow them and you get hauled into court, hmm. you, you know, the, the jury will say, well, you didn't follow best practices. You didn't even follow the NIST standard. Hmm. So here is something that becomes a, a standard for normative reasons. Hmm. I think we need changes in liability regime. Right now, we have generally eschewed software liabilities. Mm -hmm. We need to instantiate them. Yep. And I think we might need statutory damages. So right now, if uh, you want to sue a company that lost your data, mm. their defense will be, show me the harm. And you say, my identity was stolen. And mm. you say, how do you know that was because of the, my theft? Yeah. Your data was stolen 30 different times in the past two years. It could have been any of us. And that defense works. Now, in the United States, we know how to deal with this. It's called statutory damages, mm -hmm. which is a damages defined by law where you don't have to prove harm. So if, uh, if you copy a Disney movie, Disney can sue you. And mm -hmm. they don't have to prove harm. There are statutory damages you have to pay. Mm -hmm. That's in the law. Mm -hmm. If the government wiretaps you illegally... You don't have to prove harm. There are statutory damages you're owed that are in the law. To discourage that To conduct. discourage the behavior. Yeah. And so in areas where we there isn't a clear line between the bad act and the harm, that's how we bridge it. And I think we need a bunch of that here because the environment's so bad, right? You're, you're losing your data left and right. It's hard to, to point to a specific instance. Mm. 
Well, one of the, the the things that that jumps out from your book is is like uh, until recently we've been more concerned about the security of data and the confidentiality and availability of that data, but now we're, we're worried about the integrity of the data. You know, uh, you gave the example of will someone change my blood type, or act by accident or on purpose, or other forms of of integrity attacks that have that have real world life and death consequences. Well, this gets back to the fact that now computers affect the world in a direct physical manner. Mm. That it's not about data, it's about capability. So yes, right, I would be concerned if someone hacked my hospital and stole my private patient medical records. But I'd be much more concerned they don't change my blood type. Mm. Or in a car, I would would bother me if they hacked the car, turned on the Bluetooth microphone, and eavesdrop on my conversation. But it would be much more concerning if they disabled the brakes. So these Integrity and availability attacks matter much more when computers can take direct physical action because they affect the world. It's not collecting data. It's not eavesdropping. It's affecting capabilities. And now capabilities are critical. Right? Someone takes your power plant offline, that's not a data privacy attack. right? Yeah. That's an availability attack. Yeah. And it's much worse. So when law enforcement wants the ability to conduct warrant-approved uh, confidentiality attacks, they're also opening up people to uh, other attackers um, disrupting the integrity or availability of, of that, that service or, or object or device. That's 100% right. I mean, I can't separate the attack because they're all pretty much the same attack vector. If you have access, whether you're spying or altering right. or deleting or turning no, something it, off. It's the same attack. It's the same attack. So, so that makes this much more risky. But yes, I think this is relatively new because no matter what the story is about computer security, it's invariable about privacy. Because this, this is this is so dramatically different than like actual tapping wires in like the phone company, you know, after Olmsted in the twenties, thirties, forties. Like if you're tapping someone's landline, you're not going to kill them. Like there's no way to harm them besides actually violating their privacy, hopefully with a warrant. But now we're talking about tapping that wire, and all of a sudden you can blow up their fridge, or crash their car, or and disrupt their medical device, or or turn off their 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 heat in the winter, and their pipes freeze. I mean, lots of we can make lots of scenarios, and this is new, right? The news is always about confidentiality. Mm. It's uh, Equifax, it's the OPM hack, it's Cambridge Analytica, Target Corporation. It you know it, again and again what we saw just the other day with. Uh, Google and Google Plus. Yes, it's it's someone accessed the data. Hmm. It's someone is misusing the data, and that's going to be a difference. Hmm. It's going to be about these more physical attacks. And you're right; you can't allow one without allowing them all. Hmm. They, they don't they don't separate cleanly because they're so intertwined. And yet, I still see law enforcement and even Five Eyes law enforcement community as a whole saying we still need encryption backdoors. We still need access to everything. Are, are they not understanding this or, or deliberately, willfully ignoring the problem? I think it's, I think it's different than, than either of those. I think it's, they're just being too myopic. I mean, law enforcement's job is law enforcement, right? The NSA's job is spying. So they're going to look at policies that make law enforcement or spying easier. Mm. You actually need to step back and say, well, what, that's one equity. The other equity is defense and national security and these other things. Mm. So we're going to have to look at this issue as a whole. Mm. Because the solution is to say to the FBI, I get that you need this. I get that it's important. You can't have it. And mm. here's why. Because giving it to you is too dangerous in these other areas that are not your purview. Mm. And so the, I don't think the FBI is either being willfully ignorant or uh, 
or stupid. I think they're just being myopic. I think they're just looking at this is what we have to do. And this again gets back to the notion of public interest technology. Mm. I need people at the legislative level who are supposed to see the big picture to understand that big picture. And explain to their bosses, you know, the FBI are well-intentioned people, but they're wrong on this one. And it's our job as Congress to say, we need to look at all the equities and ask what's best for society as a whole, not just what's best for the FBI's mission. And of course, that's hard because in a democracy, you know, being tough on crime gets you reelected, gets you votes. And to say that, no, not giving the FBI these uh, tools looks like you're not being tough on crime. You actually are, but there's a bit of an education. So now imagine us in a you know, televised debate. You call me not tough on crime, and I give a four-minute lecture on why you're wrong. Who just won the right. debate? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right? Sound bites tend to win. And so these are subtle arguments. But we have to make them. We have to understand them. It feels like all the economic and political incentives at work today are uh, disfavoring strong security. Right now, unfortunately, they are. But I think what is going to change is these physical computers. I think when computers start killing people, people will demand action and Congress will do something. Right? I mean, and, and a lot of what I want in the book is to have the debate now. But so I, I think this inaction is very much at a tipping point. Mm. I fear it could tip quite dramatically the wrong way if we're not careful. I fear that too. Because the, uh, the knee-jerk reaction to a hacked car that kills people is let's spy on all the cars. Let's be able to control the cars. Right, let's control the cars remotely. I mean, you can imagine those reactions. Yeah. A- and they sound good to a lay audience. They're the exact opposite of what you want to do. Mm. But yes, I think we have to be concerned about that. I mean, I ha- we're worried about CRISPRs, right? We're worried about home gene editing. And the way we're going to solve that is DRM for CRISPRs which will be about as much a disaster as DRM for music and movies were, but sure sounds good. Man. Well, uh, I, I think we've covered everything I can possibly think of. Is there anything I've forgotten to ask you? Oh, there's lots of things. It's all in the book. Well, <laughs> I did read the book. I, I did read the book. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, Bruce. Uh, Click Here to Kill Everybody by Bruce Schneier. Uh, this has been Salted Hash. Check out uh, more at CSOonline.com. Thanks again for your time, Bruce. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah, cheers. Cool.